Wake up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales. Si, senor. Sarah Tafoya. Merry Christmas. And Glenn Leverance. That's how I know. This is Morning Air. On Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. You squeeze the baby or squeeze the accordion. Not sure which is a better noise. Oh, I know. It's the baby. The babies are always better noise when you squeeze them. Thanks so much for joining us for Morning Air. Glenn in for John today. Uh, Sarah out as well. Gabby at the controls running the ship for us this morning. So things going just fine. Thank you so much for joining us. Kim Morgan's along later in this hour. We're going to talk about parenting adult children. Yeah, they still need parenting. Of course, we're not going to stop doing that, are we? But uh, some of the uh, trials and travails and good tips for making that happen. We'll look at the story corner before the hour is through. But uh, first off, dealing with some hard news uh, for pro-lifers out there in the in the battle for life as more and more of that battle moves to the personal space of those considering ending their pregnancy with abortion pills becoming more and readily available. More and more abortions are done this way. Uh, access ruled by the FDA uh, and the federal government to be more easy than ever now in that pharmacy down at the end of your block. And uh, we, we need to have some new and different and stronger strategies, uh, even in the wake of the ending of Roe v. Wade. Here to talk about that, a certified nurse, midwife, mom, grandmother, and a pro-life champ, Mary Bauer joins us from Illinois today. Mary, great to have you along. Good morning, Glenn. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Tell us uh, about the news here, the FDA policy change that's going to allow some terrible things readily available not far from the candy at the local pharmacy. Well, the, on January 3rd, the FDA changed uh, their um, policy to ease access for abortion pills um, so that women can uh, get them at their local pharmacy with a prescription. Um, but I would like to kind of take a step back and explain what that is to our readers and our listeners um, so that they really understand what abortion pills are comprised of and the dangers um, of taking them so that they really understand why getting them at your local pharmacy can be so dangerous. And that's very important. Um, we want you to be able to do that because it's not like uh, taking an aspirin, making a, a headache go away. And the uh, story of Abby Johnson, the movie Unplanned, uh, illustrates uh, accurately and sadly and horrifically, actually, the reality of dealing with these. Absolutely. Um, mifepristone and um, mesoprostol um, are two different medications that comprise what um, most people understand as the abortion pill, but it's actually two separate medications. Um, when women are given um, abortion pills, the first uh, pill is called mifepristone. Um, it's also commonly known as RU486. It is a progesterone antagonist. And uh, when taken, it selectively competes with progesterone on progesterone receptor sites on the uterine lining, um, basically inhibiting uh, the progesterone from sustaining a pregnancy. Um, this drug's been considered risky enough that providers must be certified in dispensing it, and it has always been required in the past to be taken in the presence of a provider. Um, it's one of the few drugs that the FDA has required uh, what's called a REMS, which is a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. And um, when there is a 
uh, risk evaluation and mitigation strategy in place for a drug, it's because it has known uh, adverse effects and uh, dangerous um, side effects uh, for women. But it's one of the very few that the FDA requires. Um, the second drug that women take would be after the mifepristone. It's taken generally two days after um, they've had the mifepristone. It's called mesoprostol, and it's designed to soften the cervix and cause uterine contractions to expel the pregnancy. So the combination of these two drugs results in a medication abortion, and it's been approved uh, to use this combination up to 10 weeks of gestation, which is 70, considered 70 days. Um, of note, I should say that there is no other known use in medicine for mifepristone other than to end a pregnancy. So it doesn't have any other medication value for our people. Mary, the advent of these drugs has been around for a while now, but in light of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, there's some 14 states that have pretty much totally eliminated uh, abortion right now, and we, uh, as far as legal abortion, and we hope that will continue. But uh, uh, the use of these drugs in, in a woman's home is more and more prevalent, even before Roe v. Wade was overturned. Isn't the, uh, the number about 50% of abortions were done chemically? Yes, about 54% is what we're seeing. So over half of uh, abortions today are being done uh, with medication. And they start yeah. it generally at home, at, at a clinic. Um, the mifepristone is usually witnessed by um, a provider. And um, then they go home with a little packet of a couple more pills that they take uh, 24 to 48 hours later at home. And that's something uh, that in terms of a lot of pro-life work gets done, say, on the sidewalk outside of uh, an abortion center, that ability to be that uh, that last stop, the last line of defense to get one more word in for life, that opportunity goes away in situations like this. And so talk a little, too, about some of the new strategies of equipping people, especially young people, to be able to have that conversation maybe with their college roommate who might uh, confide that uh, they're considering this and to be able to be almost that last line of defense right there. Right. And I think um, in general, uh, women need to become more educated on these drugs uh, and the dangers of them so that they can counsel friends who are considering doing this, um, that there are risks to themselves, to the women themselves, um, not just uh, for having an abortion, but um, the drugs themselves are very dangerous. And um, there are women that should never even be given um, these drugs, women who are um, who have bleeding problems um, or are on blood thinners or have adrenal gland problems or are taking uh, long-term corticosteroid therapies. There's major contraindications uh, to mifepristone for certain population numbers. Now, the good news is it's possible to do a reversal in between the first and second pill. Yes, that is true. Um, when I was in uh, practice doing that, um, which I did uh, for a while until um, there were some concerns about uh, risk management with my employer and I was asked to stop, um, I had great success with abortion pill reversal protocols. And um, it's 
basically giving women uh, a high dose level of progesterone to kind of knock off the mifepristone. And so you kind of flood the progesterone receptor sites with more progesterone. And um, as long as they've only taken the first day of the pills, which is the mifepristone, um, there is a higher chance of salvaging that pregnancy when a woman changes her mind. And one of the biggest um, side effects of abortion is often regret. And uh, women do change their minds. Sometimes they're kind of forced into an abortion by a boyfriend um, who doesn't want to have a baby right now. Or parents, believe it or not, who say, if you have a baby, you're not staying at my house. I'm kicking you out. And so sometimes these women are desperate, but yet in their hearts, they know what they're doing is gravely wrong. And so they're seeking out help. And um, I can tell you uh, one experience that will live with me forever. Um, I had gone out early in the morning to get coffee at six o'clock in the morning, and I was sitting in the parking lot. And I got a phone call from the abortion pill reversal protocol organization saying they had a woman on the other line. Uh, who wanted uh, to be given the um, abortion pill protocol, reversal protocol, and they connected her with me. And she was literally sobbing on the telephone, begging me to help her. She had regretted this decision to take the first day of pills and uh, wanted me to help her. And I was able to prescribe the progesterone for her um, and Blessedly, she was able to carry her pregnancy to term, gave birth to a beautiful baby boy, and uh, he's now almost three years old. Um, and that's just one um, story. But the, re- the research is there to support um, that the progesterone reversal protocol does work. But um, I feel that the pro-abortion uh, organizations really don't want anyone to know that this is even possible because it will decrease their numbers of successes. And um, as we all know, a lot of this boils down to dollars. If you have questions about our topic today, we're talking about abortion pills, abortion medication becoming more readily available thanks to a new FDA uh, decision that uh, kicked in on January 3rd. Mary Bauer is our guest. If you have questions, our number is 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. As more and more abortions take place at home, chemical abortions now make up 54% of all abortions, and that number very likely to increase with several states uh, outlawing abortion altogether, but yet harder to enforce if someone uh, is able to do that at home. Talk, Mary, a little bit about the availability or not in different states that that ban abortion. Um, there are a number of states that allow only uh, physicians to dispense abortion pills right now. I believe that number stands at 32. Um, the American College of Nurse Midwives, of which I am no longer a member, um, advocates for all midwives to be able to be abortion providers. And um, at their annual conferences, they offer um, opportunities for midwives to learn how to do uh, both uh, vacuum aspiration abortions and how to dispense uh, medication uh, abortion pills as well. Um, We're going to see that the federal government is... um, pushing harder and harder for uh, access to these pills as kind of a a workaround to state laws. And um, 
by offering abortion pills through pharmacies, um, it really is kind of a workaround. And I'd like to address that if I could. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when you know a pharmacy is given uh, the ability to dispense these, the FDA's website is really um, kind of clear where it says um, that the pharmacists have to dispense it with a prescription from a healthcare provider. So that would sort of make you think that, you know, you, you have a sore throat, you've got strep, you need an antibiotic, you go to the pharmacy, and then they dispense your penicillin because you've given them a piece of paper with your prescription on it. Um, but there are medications that are dispensed by pharmacists without a visit to a doctor. For example, flu vaccines. Uh, if you go to Walgreens, get a flu vaccine. Um, they will have a prescription with the vial of the, the flu vaccine uh, in a package before they give it to you. Um, somebody had to dispense that. So I believe that the pharmacists are given the authority to do that. Uh, the same thing now with Paxlovid for COVID. Um, you can go to a pharmacy and a pharmacist can dispense that. It's normally a prescription item. So are abortion pills going to be uh, treated the same way as a flu vaccine where a pharmacist has the authority to be that provider giving you a prescription for it or not? Um, that was not clear in the FDA's website, but it's a slippery slope. I mean, if you can get a flu shot that way, I could easily see them dispensing abortion pills in the same manner. And, uh, Mary, some real big-name pharmacies involved in this. Uh, do we need to kind of let them know how we feel? We're talking Walgreens and CVS here. Walgreens and CVS um, are the two big ones. Um, I think it would behoove um, our listeners to reach out to these pharmacies and um, boycott their products if you can. Uh, also let them know that, you know, this is wrong and that you don't support doing this. One of the biggest concerns that I have um, is if you're getting these pills at a pharmacy, um, are pharmacy techs allowed to dispense them too? Um, are women being counseled on the severe risks of taking these medications? Um, are they counseled on what to expect at home with hemorrhaging, uh, possibility of infection, perhaps an unknown ectopic pregnancy? Um, I'm not sure that when you stand at the counter at Walgreens that they would take that kind of time to counsel you. And it's also kind of um, uh, an important thing to do for, for patients, you know, not just tell them, you know, you might get a headache from this or you might have heavy bleeding. Um, I don't think it's appropriate for pharmacies and pharmacists to be dispensing a medication that is that um, restricted by the FDA with a, you know, a risk management plan in place. Well, I think, too, just uh, making our kids aware at the pro appropriate age that this is out there, uh, you know, equipping our kids to tell their friends uh, about some of the dangers as well, not like, hey, here's another alternative, and it's just a pill 
That is not the case at all. It's uh, much more than, quote, just a pill. Hey, one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about, you talked about uh, midwife training, and uh, various uh, organizations would like midwives to be able to be trained to administer various abortion procedures. I would think one wants to get into that business because you would enjoy bringing new life into the world. Talk about the mental gymnastics necessary to uh, be uh, sometimes forced to to learn about ending that life before it hardly gets started. Well, I'm glad you asked that because uh, the American College of Nurse Midwives, uh, I believe, has a very strong pro-abortion agenda. Um, And you feel it at their meetings. Uh, There is a caucus of pro-life midwives within the American College of Nurse Midwives, um, which I did belong to up until a couple of years ago. And when we would meet at our our caucus meetings at the annual conventions, we were always relegated to a very early time slot, you know, 6.30 or 7 in the morning, somewhere in, you know, an obscure meeting room that was kind of away from the rest of the meeting. And um, we were not, our opinion, was not welcomed, even though uh, American College of Nurse Midwives says they embrace diversity, but they really don't embrace diversity of thought uh, on this. And to me, as a pro-life midwife, it's been very difficult um, being at these meetings where, you know, there's blatant advertising for uh, come down at, you know, 10 a.m. and learn how to do vacuum aspiration abortions. Um, everyone, every midwife should be doing this. And I finally, even though I was part of the pro-life caucus, um, I felt like I just couldn't give my hard-earned dollars to an organization that really was pro-abortion. And um, it's very hard to be uh, in a job where your whole job has always been bringing life into the world, as you were saying. And, I mean, that's what brings me pure joy So being told I would have to learn how uh, to end a pregnancy just is absolutely unpalatable to me. Mm. Well, Mary, and just finally, uh, maybe to touch a little bit on conscience protections here, not only for midwives, for doctors, for nurses, but even pharmacists that don't want to be anywhere near this life-ending procedure. Well, it's it's going to be a battle. I I think that... uh, a lot of legislation keeps being brought up to uh, whittle away at provider protections uh, for conscience. And um, it's absolutely critical that um, we protect those values um, for people. And it does put people like myself into difficult positions. And I've been in that position um, when I was a labor nurse back 15, 16 years ago being told I had to assist in a termination of a pregnancy um, on a hospital labor and delivery unit. And and the patient in the next room, I was trying to rescue that pregnancy because she was in preterm labor. And um, it did pose quite a conundrum. Um, And yet we were able to uh, determine that about half of our staff was unwilling to participate in abortions. And I was able to get uh, a document in every employees folder saying whether they were willing to participate or not. So nobody felt that their job was at risk because of that. Um, But I don't see that that protection is going to be in place um, in the future. I think we are in danger of losing some of that um, protection. 
Well, Mary, thanks for your good and life-saving work and uh, illuminating the situation of uh, more and ready availability of those abortion pills. Uh, Let's be aware of that out there, both in our personal lives to get the word out and uh, maybe corporately, too, to to send a message as well to those people that are eager to provide uh, that along with all the other things one might find in a pharmacy. But uh, thank you very much, Mary Bauer, been with us for this segment. Coming up right around the corner, uh, we'll have some uh, quick and very, very beautiful takes on uh, the election to Pope of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, who we laid to rest yesterday. Uh, and uh, that's on the way. Kim Morgan joins us as well. We'll take a look at parenting successfully adult children. Yeah, that's uh, that's the ongoing job for for so many. And uh, that plus a news story corner coming up before the hour is through. All on the way as we continue with more of Morning Air next year on Relevant Radio and on the Relevant Radio app. Bringing the light of Christ to start your day. This is Morning Air. I've got that good feeling Kicking me out of my chair Dancing like I don't care I've got that good feeling Good morning, it's Morning Air on Relevant Radio. Glenn in for John today. Gabby along for the ride as well. Thanks for joining us. Hey, a friend of Relevant Radio passed along something neat going on in the Twin Cities this weekend. A lot of listeners in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area and at Our Lady of Lake in Mound, Minnesota. Beautiful western suburbs along Lake Minnetonka there. It's uh, Eucharistic Miracles of the World. This uh, tour of some relics is coming there. 126 photographic, historically documented Eucharistic miracles from various countries since the Last Supper. There is that, plus a first-class relic of Blessed Carlo Acutis will be there as well. It goes on uh, 8 to 8 today and tomorrow, and Sunday 8 till noon as well. Uh, That's for our Twin Cities friends at Our Lady of the Lake in Mound, Minnesota as well. We uh, laid to rest Pope Emeritus Benedict uh, yesterday, a beautiful funeral at the Vatican, presided over by Pope Francis, and uh, had occasion this week to talk with a priest friend of mine, Father Aaron Kuhn, who uh, pastors uh, as part of a team, uh, eight different parishes in uh, our uh, a Mary Mother of the Church, uh, we should say, in the diocese, uh, that cluster Mary Mother of the Church in the Diocese of St. Cloud, Minnesota, with some fabulous remembrances of being at St. Peter's when the new Holy Father in Pope Benedict was announced. The procession begins, They all the cardinals start taking up all the side, the little ledges that they all come out of, and they hang out there and they wait, and then suddenly the curtains open, and out comes the cross-bearer, one of the servers, and then comes one of the cardinals who has this almost like an ancient scroll, right, that he opens up and... Uh, all you citizens of the world, and I'm translating it in English because it was all in Italian <laughs> slash Latin, and all you citizens of the world, with great joy, habemus papam, you know, we have the we have a pope. He just reveled in every word that he was able to say <laughs> as the as the, the cardinals letter, reverendissimum dominum, Josephum. He says, Joseph is the name of the first name. And we went, oh, there's only two cardinals with the first name, Joseph. <laughs> and then, uh, then there's this, so it's like an excitement in the crowd. And then everybody quieted down. And then he waited for the calm. Then he finishes out the phrase. I forget how it goes. And then he says, Cardinalum Ratzinger, and then the I have been at I've been at rock concerts. <laughs> I have I have been at uh, when when howitzer tanks are firing off. I've been right up next to them. I've been in loud spaces before, but this was the single loudest occasion I've ever been in my whole life. Um, <laughs> 
and that the whole place erupted. The square was exploding. People are hugging one another and screaming and yelling, and they're just so so excited. Yes, indeed, as we're remembering uh, the election to Pope of uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict, who he laid to rest yesterday, Father Aaron Kuhn, who sounds uh, a bit like Josh Raymond, but uh, it's not Josh. Josh will be long at 11 doing his, his regular program. And uh, finally, Father Kuhn had uh, just some great uh, imagining based on this of what it might be like entering heaven. You've seen those pictures before, how he just looks like a a person who is so deeply moved himself, the, the joy that he's experiencing um, at having been elected as the, the new Roman pontiff. And so he comes out the window and that his kind of piano fingers that he liked to do, putting his fingers out in the air and, and almost like he's playing the piano, just waving to the crowd, um, smile of joy on his face. It was, I've told myself, uh, I, I, you know, I wonder what it's like when we enter into heaven after we've gone through our judgment with Jesus, and then suddenly the gates of heaven open up to us. You know, well, well done, good and faithful servant. servant. Uh, here's the kingdom prepared for you, and you enter into heaven. And does does your name get announced like that? That uh, finally here arriving at the gates of heaven is Glenn Leverance. And then, you know, you enter in, and anyone who's known you, all the saints and the people who have been watching from, from ages, your, all of our ends, all of our friends who have gone before us in faith, the whole communion of saints gathered together just in rejoicing joy, another soul for heaven. Yes, you've made it. Like that's the image that I look to for myself of what heaven must be like. The rejoicing in heaven is that moment of the announcement of Pope Benedict. Oh, some great reflections on uh, the installation there of uh, Pope Benedict XVI as we uh, look back at uh, the life and pontificate just a little bit. Had to had to share those with you from Father Aaron Kuhn. Had some uh, just beautiful descriptions of what it was like being in a very loud St. Peter's Square that day and uh, imagining what it might be like to enter heaven as well. That's where we would like to imagine greeting our children someday, successfully navigating them from the crib through adulthood. We're going to talk about parenting adult children now. Kim Morgan joins us. Kim Morgan, a licensed independent clinical social worker, Catholic wife and mom of many from St. Louis. has been a long-time morning air guest as well as doing work on our affiliate KS in, in Minnesota through the years. Kim, great to have you along today. Thanks for joining us. Merry Christmas still and Happy New Year. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy Epiphany, too. All kinds of things to celebrate, and uh, even with all of that, I know you can hardly wait for the St. Louis Cardinals baseball season to get underway. I'm ready for the weather that goes with it as well. I'm sure my Minnesota friends can relate as well. Um, (laughs) It's interesting that um, my interview with you is following on the heels of talking more about uh, Pope Benedict and his installation when we arrived in Minnesota, uh, we were new to the area, new to building friendships, and of course we start with the church and our, our parish friends. Shortly after we arrived, Pope Benedict was elected pope, and I got a phone call saying, the pope's just been elected, everyone's so excited, I would host a party, but my house isn't big enough. And there were crickets. And I'm like, well, I, I, I could host a pope party, I guess. <laughs> and 140 of our closest friends and all their children and all their slow cookers showed up at my house that night <laughs> to celebrate Pope Benedict being elected the most 
crazy, wild party. It was the continuum of what uh, we just heard um, in the previous hour of the excitement and the enthusiasm and the, the idea that we all need to be fluid. We need to be uh, ready to embrace when it's time to be joyful and to celebrate and uh, be ready to, to answer God's call to that in a very spiritual, holy, and festive way, and that night was full of that kind of joy as well. Friends that we still have today, friends that ask us, how did we know all these people? And we said, well, they all go to the same church. That's all we knew was the people at the church. They didn't even know each other. They all went to different masses. They were involved in different parts of the church. So bringing them together in a new and different environment to celebrate one common thing, and that was our new pope, was a great way to start expressing new traditions and new patterns uh, that were life-lasting for not just our, our our parish friends, but then our family, too. Oh, what a, a great way to, to celebrate, a great fun way to bring some folks together as well. Uh, part of the, the unique charism of, uh, you know, helping to be uh, a social connector there, the, the Morgan family doing good work once again. Well, Kim, we know from talking with you through the years that uh, you have a uh, a great family there. You've got six kids uh, on this side of heaven, and uh, three of those have passed into adulthood now. So you speak with some experience about parenting adult children. We're not, we don't really, you know, say, oh, you're 18, you're done, or you're, you know, you've graduated college and we're done with you now. Nope, uh, for better or worse, we still have interest and we, we ought to as well. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some of those good uh, parenting tips, but probably first off, starting with some of the more common challenges in trying to parent adult children. I think trying to to parent adult children and not be too overwhelming, but to reassure them that you're there for guidance, but not make them have the emotional reaction of, wow, I can't do anything right. I, I, Mom and Dad did it so so effortlessly, so fluidly. And I'm like, well, yes, we had lots of practice, lots of trial and error that maybe you didn't remember when you were small. And so trying to find the words is probably one of the most challenging parts to say, I'm here for you. I don't want to meddle in your life. But if you need me to guide you through something, I'll be there to do that. And I think part of that is helping them into adulthood to take on the roles and the traditions of our Catholic faith, that they now have the responsibility to pass to their children what they have learned from us. So, for example, Epiphany. All of a sudden, Epiphany is here this weekend, and the kids are like, well, where did you get the chalk? Well, how exactly do I write it above the doorway? Well, does Father have to be there? Well, obviously, Father is not Santa Claus. He can't be in every house and at the same evening at the same time. So, no, the, the patriarch or the matriarch or the household might take on that role then to, to bless the house and to follow the traditions. So helping adult kids learn that these things you have to teach yourself. You have to find the information. You have to find the piece of chalk, you have to make sure you have the holy water picked up from from the the church vestibule or or have a, have it blessed in a special ceremony at at times at at masses um, is something that's proactive and so one of the roles that I take on now that I'm having adults is just sending little friendly text reminders, "Hey, by the way, don't forget next week's holy day of obligation. You might want to look at your work schedule." Don't forget, next week you might want to bless your house, you might want to pick up the chalk and holy water. 
so that they begin to add those things to their calendar and their lives and um, and incorporate that as now an adult Catholic in the world. Kim, is it kind of a, a common thing that kids will you know, drift away from tradition a little bit or at least communicating about it, and then they might kind of come back around to it, uh, you know, when they get married, when they become parents themselves? I do hear people say that, and I find that the commonality in that is that they often come from a household that didn't take it seriously enough. And what do I mean by seriously enough? Well, do you have... Sports clothing for your favorite sports team. Do your kids have jerseys of a football team? Or, uh, you know, Cardinals gear, of course, having the best baseball <laughs> gear possible. Um, do, we, do we fan club these events? Uh, do, do we have our favorite band's uh, album or, um, you know, on our, our playlist? And if we do, do we have the equivalent of that in our Catholic world? So do we have dress-up costumes that look like saints? Do we have stuff that kids can imitate the Mass and play Mass as well as play house or play, um, play different kinds of characters, superheroes in our lives? Is Christ our biggest superhero? Are the saints superheroes that we try to imitate? So we need to have these things as part of our repertoire in our house to show our kids the importance. When we do... I don't think you find as many families saying my kids strayed away from the faith. I really don't. In fact, I feel like when you ask college kids that come from faith-filled houses, the first thing they do when they go to college is find the Catholic Church, and they get involved, and they find the campus ministry. And it may look very different than where they went to church with mom and dad, but it becomes their own. It becomes their identity, their responsibility, and their passion to create that adult relationship, that growing intensity of a faith-filled life with Christ. And I realize that it's not unusual to find young people that stick with their faith. It's not unusual for them to desire it and, in fact, enhance their faith even more as they get older. But it starts at home. It starts when they're small. Are we talking about the faith all the time? Do we talk about everyday saints every day? And are we praying every day with our kids? So raising adult kids starts 18 years before you're raising adult kids. And it's a great idea to think about when you're raising small ones. Wow, now's the time. I need to build these foundations and create this wonderful, beautiful experience in their relationship with God because ultimately we're not going to have the best baseball player on the Cardinals team come out of our families. We're not going to find the greatest quarterback. We're not going to have the best musician ever in the world. It's going to be very, very rare. But I'll tell you what, our ultimate goal is actually sainthood for our kids, actually getting them to heaven, actually eternal life. And if we want that for our kids, we need to build those kind of values in our home, have those kind of traditions. And it is so joyous and so much fun to create activities and food and experiences with young people about the church that we live in. It is, it's actually a very vibrant and alive church, and the kids really take on to these traditions, and they look for them and they emulate them as they grow older. 
Raising adult Catholic kids, we'll talk about that and how to reel them back in when things don't go according to plan when we continue with more of Kim Morgan next as Morning Air continues here on Relevant Radio and on the Relevant Radio app. Wake up, America. It's Morning Air with John Morales, Sarah Tafoya, and Glenn Leverett. Jump into the conversation. Call 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Bringing the light of Christ to start your day. This is Morning Air. Thanks for joining us, Glenn, and for John. Today, our number is 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Talking with Kim Morgan today, we're talking about parenting adult children, oh, not only uh, passing along some of those uh, great traditions, uh, whether it be feast days and saints, and keeping up some of that uh, you know, Catholic education we might do in the home when they're younger, but not forgetting to, to help them uh, uh, continue to be educated and pass that along to their own kids when they're adults, but also maybe some thoughts, too, on, on reeling things back in when our kids do get a little bit astray as well. Uh, Kim, that ends up being one of our most common prayer requests, uh, easily the most common prayer requests, uh, praying for family members to come back to the faith. Uh, your great point before the break that we need to start when they're little and uh, you know infuse that faith in them solidly day after day from infancy on so that it's not just a given that they'll drift away in college or young adulthood and, and come back. And we found even in terms of church attendance, that isn't happening as automatically as we used to think, oh, that's kind of what happens. They'll come back around when they're looking to get married and have kids and the like. And as that process gets stretched out later into adulthood as well, uh, it takes longer. It's not as automatic as it used to be. But again, a very, very common situation, Kim, that people have tried their very best and it hasn't gone as smoothly. That's exactly right, Glenn. And uh, for those families, of course, um, we are praying. And I know Relevant Radio puts that in their daily prayers uh, at the chapel every single day. And that is the most powerful intervention we can do for our adult children is to pray. And also to leave the doors open, leave the doors open for conversation. And sometimes that conversation's hard because sometimes it's about a, a hurt or uh, something that didn't seem fair and didn't go quite right, and reminding our children uh, on their journey that the church is made up of lots of little humans, little humans that make lots of mistakes as um, as parents, as priests, as religious, as teachers. We all make mistakes, and that doesn't represent the true fullness and beauty of the authentic and um, and non non harmed church that Jesus created um, humans have tainted it, not Jesus, and Jesus is the the pinnacle of this church and to remind our kids that we're human, and I think a good way too that parents can help in the process uh, I never heard my parents really say they were sorry to me, even if they they knew they did something wrong when I was a kid. They never said they were sorry. And I feel like that was unfortunate because when I, as a parent now, tell my child, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, or I was wrong about that, or I didn't listen to you fully before I jumped in and said something, I think it brings about a humility and a remorse to show that I'm I'm a human being that is flawed and sinful. And sometimes people in our churches are flawed and sinful and and say the wrong thing along the way. And I think more times than not, we see people leave because they find that it seems not genuine. 
And if we can actually bring in the humility of sorrow and and say we're sorry when we've done something wrong, it certainly will help young people to realize, oh, okay, there is a place for me here because there's times when I do something that doesn't uh, do right by another person, it doesn't um, bring out the best, the true, the good, and the beautiful. And if there's a place for these people to say they're sorry and I can realize the humanity, then there's a place for me there too. And one of the best... um, one of the best things I've seen is the the church as a whole come back and say they're sorry. And, and we know that Pope Emeritus Benedict said he was sorry for many things that have happened. And that is a very adult and mature way to handle things. And sometimes we find our, our children leave because they see that we might be disingenuous or, or someone was hurtful. And this is a way to bridge that and to start rebuilding and healing some of the hurts that our our children have experienced is perhaps even at kind of a young age perhaps in their adolescence when they're very vulnerable and uh, very much looking for justice in the world around them and when we tell them you know the church is the end all and then the church fails them in some way in some maybe some small ways maybe some big way um, that can be very hurtful and be hard for a young person to find a way to work themselves through that. Um, I think uh, the Catholic Church is also doing a great job of putting in place in archdiocese and in, in local community dioceses um, outreach programs to uh, allow people to come back in a very caring and loving way to church and talk through some of those concerns that they've had, and, and often very rightly so. And uh, so I encourage anybody that's experiencing that hurt, whether they be the parents of a child who has left the church for a while or a person themselves who doesn't feel comfortable going back, look at your diocese website and try to find where that outreach program is. There are many out there, and the church wants all of us to come back and be closer to Jesus. Uh, They want us to reconcile. And they want to have an opportunity to say they're sorry if there's a grievance. Uh, absolutely. That can build such great credibility, too, with our adult children if we, uh, you know, acknowledge and communicate. Uh, maybe it's, you know, uh, we did something wrong. Maybe it was a misperception of something. But uh, as that relationship changes, we're always taught not to be friends with our kids, always be parents. But that line gets a little blurred as they become adults. Before the break, we talked a little bit about sharing some of those uh, feast days, holidays, holy days of obligation, some of the traditions that we pass along as well, and kind of make sure they get on the calendar with our busy young adult children as well. Uh, One of those, the house blessing coming up for Epiphany. Kim, uh, your family does that. Uh, Instruct us a little bit in how that works for those uh, who haven't picked up on that yet with the house blessing. Well, we have a little file folder we've kept over the years with some different prayers that are said through the experience, and any parish... um, that you go to around the season will have a little sheet probably in the vestibule of church with a few prayers that you would open up and the, the father or the, the matriarch of the house, whoever's going to be in charge of that, would read the prayer and the children respond and then the, um, the person who's tall enough can reach above the doorway and write in chalk um, the, the number 20 and then... Uh, the the letters that symbolize the first letter of each of the kings, and then it ends with 23 this year. So you have 20 at the beginning, 23 at the end, and the king's initials in the middle. And the other thing our family does is 
we like to sing. So we sing We Three Kings as we process through the house in every single room, in every closet, blessing the house with holy water. And we do it as a group. So it's not just one person, but we're all there together. We're all singing. And then uh, we often will sing a closing hymn after the final prayer just because we like to sing. And it's a, a good little ritual. Often there's friends or neighbors over, and they participate with us because they're just kind of drafted into it. But it's a very joyous and festive evening. We don't have traditional um, foods or desserts. We've moved a lot. We've lived in different cultures. Um, But I do think that there are many people that have certain foods on certain days to represent and remind us that um, this is just kind of what we do. Well, we always have chili on this day, or we always have sandwiches on this day. So that can be something you also incorporate is the the joy of uh, food and um, feeding your family after uh, a nice little house blessing. And it certainly can be done on or around Epiphany. It doesn't have to be on the actual day. There's not a a strict set of rules about how it's to be done. There's a a variety of ways it can be done. But many house blessings you will see end up, the result is that chalk written above the doorway. And in many houses actually have taken to like stenciling it now, making it very fancy. Some people have it above more than one doorway. Uh, again, the church is very fluid about this. There's no hard and fast rules. No, if you have uh, some form of uh, fancy stenciling that says live, laugh, love in your uh, living room, does that take care of that or, or no? That's, that's different. I, I don't think it meets that uh, blessing obligation of having the three kings represented with the year of our Lord, but it certainly is not in opposition to the church either. Again, the church is very free about the joy that we bring into our home and uh, my kids now uh, that I'm in my 50s kind of make fun of my little plaques like that, too. But, again, <laughs> it's a, a joyful mom is is a happy family, I think, in many occasions. So, hey, Amen to that. Uh, just 30 seconds left. Our Story Corner today we will be talking about taking down those Christmas decorations as a social worker. And, and, and again, as listening, many people love Christmas. Any advice for us in, in dealing with the, the tragedy of having to take down Christmas decorations? I, I found the best medicine for that is just a little at a time. So it ebbs away like a tide receding from the season, the liturgical season. And in fact, I will probably leave a few twinkle lights up above the cabinetry in the kitchen until the baptism of the Lord. We'll wait till February 2nd for that. But take it down gradually, easy, uh, just as you should have probably come into it very gracefully during the Advent season. We can retire it softly and prayerfully, and it doesn't need to be a traumatic, sad, and yelling event on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and hey, you're halfway into the south, and so you can leave those lights up on the porch year-round, too. Right? Thank you very much, Kim Morgan, joining us today as we continue with Morning Air in our Story Corner today, uh, wrapping up our series of Christmas stories, the story called Admire Their Glow. I looked at my beautiful Christmas tree inside. It was time. The new year was a week old, and my tree still stood in the corner of our room with its collection of memories proudly displayed in a shower of colorful lights. I had procrastinated long enough. I got up, went to the garage, and hauled all the boxes into the room. The garland was the first to come down. The tree looked naked already. I took the large ornaments off next. They made a, a big pile on the bed. An hour later, a bed covered with Christmas memories. Each pile contained an ornament along with its matching brothers and sisters from sets purchased many years ago. 
I prepared the boxes and carefully placed ornaments in their protective packaging, pausing every few minutes to admire a favorite. Hey, little Santa, and I held the Santa from my childhood. Thanks for being my friend for almost 50 years. He was a little ragged, but still gives me a, a flood of wonderful memories. Until next year, my dear friend, there was a collection of handmade ones. My children made them in the, the first years of school more than 20 years ago, made by tiny hands. They're far from perfect in design, but every year they go on my memory tree. Memories of young giggles on Christmas morning and a smiling face when they handed them to me when I came home from work. Look what we made, Daddy. Oh, it's beautiful. Let's find a special spot on the tree for it. And every year since, they're proudly displayed. A few hours after I started, the filled boxes were back in the garage. The room was vacuumed, and I sat staring in a barren corner. The room seemed so empty. It took me two days of work to assemble and decorate my tree, but only a few hours to take it apart. My tree is a good marriage or a, a great friendship. Like the tree, they take a long time to assemble and decorate with memories, but can be torn down quickly. All it takes may be an unkind word or a thoughtless act, and what once stood proudly in the glow of love comes tumbling down. Now every year I have to put my tree away, but not my marriage or friendships. I take great care of those. They get to glow in the corner of my life as long as I live. I get to analyze my tree and find memories for a few weeks every year. I can do the same with the loves in my life every day. When I held the Santa, a flood of wonderful memories returned. The same happens when I hold my wife or see the smile of a friend across the room. So take great care of your friendships and your marriage. Once they come down, they aren't as easy to put back together as a Christmas tree, if at all. Stand them in that special spot in the corner of your heart and admire their glow. From Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times. A brother is born for adversity. Thank you, Gabby, Patrick, Madrid, and Cyrus. Coming up next.